Hey everyone, welcome to Savage to Sage, where we explore the evolution of entrepreneurs. In this show, we hear from leaders on the challenges and breakthroughs that have shaped them on their journey toward becoming a sage. Hi everyone, welcome back to Savage to Sage. This is Daniel, the host, and today I have the joy of being joined by Chip Knighty, the founder of Kairos. Welcome, Chip. Hi. So Chip is joining me here in um, the full stack headquarters at Developer Town in Indianapolis. So I have the joy of being with him in person. Chip, why don't you tell us just a little brief background about Kairos? Well, Kairos started 16 years ago. I started with me hanging out a shingle and deciding to do some consulting work. I saw some guys at McKinsey do some consulting for us when I worked at Guidance Corporation, and they made it look easy and fun. And I thought, I think I can probably do some of that. So I look at my calendar from the first year or so of doing consulting work, and it seems very bare. And I look back at that, and I talk to my wife, Kim, and I say, what did I do that first year? And she said, I don't know. It seemed like you spent a lot of time working on your logo. (laughs) So it was maybe a different time back then. And I was so happy to just get any kind of work that I could get. Uh, Somebody hired me because they knew that I knew how to use Excel. And they said, can you model this market for us for the next 10 years using Excel? I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And I was very thrilled to get that paycheck. But over time, the business evolved. And currently, we're in a position as a team where we do work with CEOs and executive teams. And we give them new insights and new capabilities to help them navigate inflection points in their organizations and to prepare them for new chapters of growth. So it's very different from the very beginning where I would take money from anybody to do anything that was remotely near the leadership or change space that I was interested in playing in. Now we have crystal clarity on what we do. And we're a team of five of us who do the work. We all coach and consult with our clients. It's quite different now than it was in the, those early stages where it was slim pickings trying to find a paycheck. Talk about more of those, what we call like the savage days, you know, those early days when you first stood up the business. How would you describe the savagery yeah. that it takes? Before that time, I had never sold anything in my life. I mean, we all sell ideas, I suppose, but I never sold a product or service and asked somebody to pay me money for it. So you can't be an entrepreneur without selling things. And that was one of the hardest things for me to learn. And I spent a lot of time, what I would call networking with people, where it was a complete waste of my time because they weren't prospects. And I met with a lot of people where I'd say, yeah, let's be referral partners. So if you ever see something that's good for me, you refer them to me. And if I ever see anything good for you, I'll refer them to you. Complete waste of time. Because what's needed is for somebody to sell something to somebody who wants to consume that good or service. So I think the first part of me was having to actually find some savagery and some intensity and going out and hitting the streets and pounding the pavement, picking up the phone and calling people and trying to get people interested in what I was actually offering. I don't know that I consider myself a particularly savage people. I think I don't perceive myself as super high energy. I don't perceive myself as intense, but other people probably perceive me a little more intense than I perceive myself. <laughs> uh, you know, when I think of the early days, there's a lot of, if you're the only one in the business, I mean, I was a solopreneur, I had to do everything. You know, I had to figure mm-hmm. out how to run QuickBooks. I had to figure out what does marketing look like? How do I get a website built? How do I target a new market? How do I package as good or service? How do I price a good or service? All of this is stuff where I had people who were helping me think through it as advisors, but they didn't have any skin in the game. So they just kind of threw out some ideas and I'd have to 
and put it into my own personal processor and kind of figure out what am I going to do with this? Mm -hmm. So I think the real savagery for me was, well, you just got to figure it out. Nobody has the answer for you. Nobody has sold this exact thing that you're trying to sell in the marketplace, which is you, right? Like you're the only one who's selling your brain right now. So you've got some unique insights into that. You just got to figure it out. What would you say was a key insight of what you learned about yourself in those early days? You know, one of the best pieces of advice I got was by a guy named J.B. Simons. And he said, keep doubling your prices until somebody says no. And I think when I was working in a corporate environment, I just had this sense of my value based on the time that I was spending. It was a salary, but you can kind of calculate what that comes down to in an hourly wage. And you just sort of think this is your value because I was in a negotiation. I asked for a pay raise. They gave it to me. I guess that's what I'm worth. And most people in corporate environments, unless you happen to be on the front end of sales or maybe you're in marketing or you think strategically, don't think about value pricing. Don't really think about what the value is that they're delivering as part of a large organization. So for me, one of the key lessons was to recognize that the work that I delivered did have high value and to price that appropriately so that I was extracting fair value from the market. Mm -hmm. I think that's hard for a lot of entrepreneurs to do early on. In a way, they're not greedy enough. They are underconfident in the way they price their goods or services, and it's hard to run a business that way. Mm -hmm. So what were some of those lessons that you learned as you, in your friend's words, doubled your prices? What did you learn? Nothing sells like success. And so if you have a track record and stories of things that you've accomplished with clients that are meaningful to other people, that can be very helpful. My approach to selling early on, I think I stumbled into this Maybe it was serendipity or maybe somebody gave me some advice around this, but I think I kind of figured it out on my own was if you tell people, oh, I know what your problem is. Here's the solution I've got for you. It feels like you're psychologically leaning on them. When you psychologically lean on someone, they start to back up. It doesn't feel good to be psychologically leaned on. I want to, I want to get away from that. But if somebody would tell me their situation and I would say, and honestly, I would say, you know, I wouldn't be making up a story. I would say, well, your situation reminds me of something I did with another client. And I describe what I did with the other client. And I'm like, I'm not sure that matches exactly, but it just reminds me of that thing. And oftentimes the prospect would say, well, that's exactly what I need. How much would it cost to do that? I'd say, well, let me get my pencil sharpener out and put some numbers together and I'll get back with you. So I think there is something about having experiences that you can bring to bear to say, I think this is relevant to your situation. You know, I recognize a pattern here and you need experience to be able to recognize those patterns. But as I was able to see more and more of the similar patterns with my prospects and clients, it enabled me to have more confidence in my solutions, more confidence in my pricing. Therefore, more people were more attracted to what I was offering. At some point in there, I forget how early it was when you brought in another person to jump onto the team. But what prompted you to be like, I got to bring in some reinforcements here and some partners? Well, so very early on, I stumbled upon a good friend of mine that I didn't know before this. We met at a networking event and her name is Chris Taylor, K-R-I-S. Love Chris. Yeah, you know Chris, right. And Chris is what I would describe as my best long-term strategic partner of Kairos. We did many jobs together and she was about four years ahead of me in this journey of doing the kind of consulting that we were doing. It was very helpful for me to have someone to bounce ideas off of, and we could also digest bigger projects together. And we probably did that for maybe six years or so. And then about, I would say, 10 years ago, I brought on my first team member. 
her name was Kristen. Her name is Kristen Nevins. And Kristen was in my house church. And Kristen said, when I grow up, I want to do what you do. And I said, Kristen, you don't know what I do. And she said, well, I think you do this. And she described it. I was like, yeah, that's what I do. And so in the worst onboarding process in history, brought her onto the team and said, well, why don't you just kind of tag along and watch what I do? And you feel like you're ready to start doing some of that. And that's what we did. So we didn't have any structure to the onboarding. I didn't know how to onboard anybody. Then over the past 10 years, we've grown and sometimes people come and sometimes people go. But right now we have five members on the team. We'll be hiring probably another coaching consultant soon, maybe within the next few months. And what I found was early on, before I had team members actually on the Kairos team, sometimes I would sell something that was too big for me to digest myself and I would pull in subcontractors. And I'm not referring to Chris, but other subcontractors who were solopreneurs doing their own thing, but had the skill set that I needed. That was helpful for a job, but it always had a little bit of a mercenary feel. It was hard to build a team when there aren't people who are committed to the brand or to the vision or where we're going as an organization. Everybody appreciates getting brought into a project so if they don't have to find the work, but it's not the same kind of camaraderie and loyalty. And I found that once I started hiring team members into Kairos, people who actually cared about the vision were trying to make the same kind of difference in the world that I was trying to make. It built a lot of uh, momentum and it built a lot of passion. We were able to dig deeper into solving problems that we were all excited about, but getting better at solving those problems together. And so it wasn't just, can you help me solve this problem with this client? It's how do we do something that's repeatable and that's scalable and can deliver higher value and higher quality over time. And that's been really part of the most exciting part of the journey for me. And so now I got four other members on the team and I describe this as the best team that I've ever been a part of. So I've been on some very high functioning teams in the Marine Corps at Guidant Corporation. You know, even if you think about sports teams, I've been on some pretty high performing teams. This is the best team I've ever been a part of. And the reason I think of that, or the reason I say that is we hold each other accountable in a loving way. We call each other on our BS and everybody is what I call in on the joke. So people know what I'm struggling with. I know what they're struggling with. It's all fair game to talk about. Like yeah. we all have permission to say, ah, you're doing that thing you do again. Are you sure you want to be doing that now? Or maybe there's a better way to go. Oh, you're right. I'm doing it again. I found when I was doing more mercenary hiring of subcontractors, you just can't have that. It just doesn't yeah. feel the same. But when you build deeper and higher trust relationships on a team, it's really highly beneficial for everybody on the team, including me. So it's a great place for me to grow, not just for other members of the team to grow. That prompted a number of questions. One being, one of the questions I often ask is, how do you know that you know that you know that this is a person that you want to bring onto your team? And you've mentioned a couple of characteristics, but what would you say is what you're looking for? My answer will be specific to Kairos, which mm -hmm. is if I'm hiring a coach and consultant onto the team, the number one thing I need to look for is a bias and a passion for catalyzing others' transformational journeys. And I need a demonstrated track record of that. That doesn't mean I need somebody who has been in a job. That's their primary responsibility. But what I find is for the type of people who are successful within Kairos, they have demonstrated that they do that even in other jobs, you know, or they've started some venture on the side where they're like, this is within me. I've got to help other people grow and I'm going to find a way to do that. I've also found because the Enneagram is such a powerful tool for us in the work that we do, I don't need somebody to come in who's an expert in the Enneagram, but I need to have somebody who has had some experience with it and is at least not hostile to it so they can develop an expertise with it, for mm -hmm. example. 
It's a powerful motivation tool. It helps, as you know, people understand why they do what they do. And so with Kairos, we're helping people understand their own self-sabotage all the time. And the Enneagram has been an incredibly powerful tool. And you of all people know that since you are the individual who introduced me to the Enneagram. <laughs> I still remember that first conversation we had at 20 Tap when you said, hey, is this true about you? I'm like, stop reading my mail, Daniel Fuller. This is painful. Too much self-reflection here. Other characteristics that we look for, I mean, obviously, we're looking for somebody who's passionate about excellence, passionate about improving quality, passionate about delivering a high-quality experience to a client, helping them grow. And I think you have to be, for people who have a passion and a bias for catalyzing others' transformational journeys, there has to be, and there's often, I don't know if there has to be, there's often a high correlation with them being on the, their own transformational journey and open to feedback about their own growth passionate about their own growth edge and open to feedback about how they're doing and getting there. So those are a few of the things that we look for. That's powerful. Generically, I think this response would be true for any organization is you need to hire people who are passionate about the mission, who are committed to the same vision of what you're trying to do in the world as you are, because that's what pulls a team forward. And all businesses need money to stay in business. No margin, no mission. But organizations exist not to make money, but to achieve a mission. Money is part of the resource structure that's required to make that happen. But to me, it's not even the most important part of that structure. It's just a critical part of it. For the listeners out there, I'll share a little bit more color on the Enneagram introduction story. I was actually triggering because of multiple bad experiences that I had with people that are of chips type. And so I could feel myself shutting down. And in that process, I was like, hmm, I'm going to ask Chip if he's looked at this tool. And so it's funny, you know, you have that experience of vulnerability like that and you throw that out there. And now it's in my own triggering. And now it's been such a powerful tool for you and for your team and a point of connection. So just a reminder for me, even in those weak, vulnerable moments of just putting yourself out there and being transparent, being authentic and it can do things that you didn't necessarily intend it for it to do, but can bring some goodness into the world. So paradoxically, when you were most vulnerable, you were most influential with me. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that's a good reframe in terms of you personally. So when you go from sole proprietor, sole business owner to then, and you're holding sometimes very tense, vulnerable situations with your clients where they're navigating deep waters, you know, sometimes toxicity within a team. That obviously is something that you hold very closely with. It's your company, it's your brand. And then you've had to bring other team members in who you've had to entrust with those clients, with those stories. And so what's been important for you to embrace or to let go of in order to hand off those relationships and those clients to your team and trust them. Letting go is the hardest thing I ever do in life. And I'm on this journey of continuing to figure out how to let go of things that I need to let go of. So it has absolutely been a journey and continues to be a journey for me. And I think early on, especially as I built out the team, I was unaware of things that I was holding on to. In fact, I would describe as late as, you know, maybe two and a half, three years ago, Kairos was chip and friends as opposed to an entity that had kind of this independent life that I think can actually survive without me. Up until that point, I wasn't even thinking about succession plan or 
what's beyond this. I thought, yeah, after I'm done with this, everybody probably has to just kind of dissipate and go their own ways. That's not the way I'm thinking about it. So letting go, there had been a season where I was the only one selling to CEOs. And for us to scale, I need other members of the team who can not only sell to, but effectively coach and lead engagements, coach CEOs directly and lead engagements where they have they own the relationship with that CEO of our client company. And it wasn't until I realized, wow, to scale, we need that, that I started letting go of, well, I don't have to be the one who's always selling this. And I don't have to be the one who's always leading these engagements. And I don't have to be the one who's always coaching these CEOs. And in fact, lately, I've even been toying with the idea, I mean, what would it look like if I didn't coach any CEOs? Even if I found a prospect and started the sales conversation, just in, almost immediately hand that off to another member of the team and say, you, you drive this. Like I'm available to help and give you counseling and coaching, but you're the stars of the show here, not me. Like I'm taking a bit more of a backstage role to help spur more of that growth because people need space to grow. If you feel like I'm breathing down your neck or, well, if, if Chip's in the room, he can do it better. So I'm not even going to say anything. And as you know, I'm a fairly dominant personality and I can take up a lot of oxygen in the room. And for me to bite my tongue, sit on my hands, wait patiently, let other people take a stab at something instead of me weighing in, Oftentimes, we get a better experience for the client. And also, we certainly are creating better growth opportunities for individual and team. But that is not easy for me. It takes zero energy for me to jump in and say something and express my opinion. It takes a ton of energy for me to not jump in and not express my overly strongly held opinion. So the letting go piece is essential. I'm also at an interesting stage in life where I'm almost 51 years old. I'm physically slowing down. Like I just noticed I can't run as far or as fast as I used to. can't lift as much as I used to. I don't swim as fast as I used to. I sure don't ride a bike as fast as I used to. And I'm just don't even have the same energy that I used to. I've been lamenting this a little bit. Like I'm grieving some of the loss of physical capability. But then I also have this, there's a sweetness to it, which is like, yeah, but, but slowing down is okay. Like it also gives me more space to think. And there's a piece that comes in this where in parallel with the physical slowing down, there's just this sense of no, things are going to be okay. I don't have to drive my agenda. Like this is going to work out, which also gives me more confidence to let go of things. I'm like, no, it's going to be okay. I don't have to do this. Somebody else can do it and it'll be fine. And even if I could do it a hundred, quote unquote, a hundred percent, let's say, let's be more realistic. Even if I could do something 85% and somebody else could do it at 80 or 75%, it's still better for them to do it because it's a growth opportunity. So for me to fade back and say less and think more and mm -hmm. think more from my heart as opposed to just with my head or my intuition, those are powerful things that I can do for my team and I think will benefit our clients as well. Will help us make a bigger difference in the world for years to come. That's a powerful reflection. How does that new understanding, like how does that cement within your being and cement within your brain and how have you retrained yourself to let go, like as you said, to bite your tongue, sit on your hands? One of the things that I've learned in the past four or five years is the power of non-judgmental self-observation, which is watching yourself, but not judging, just noticing things and saying, hmm, that's interesting. I think most of my growth over the past decade, it's not these critical inflection points. It's not, bam, I learned something, had this aha moment and lightning bolt, and now I'm at a different level. It has just been this slow and steady evolution on a lot of different axes that I don't even notice when it's happening. Mm 
Mm. And it's only when I reflect and look back, I'm like, oh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking differently. I'm feeling differently about things. My perspective is hopefully elevated compared to what it was before. I didn't notice it happening. It's like when you see your nieces and nephews after two or three years of not having seen them, you're like, whoa, you grew up so much. But to those kids' parents, like it's just, no, it's just been slow and steady growth. Occasionally, I think we have the grace or the mercy of being able to reflect and observe our past selves. And hopefully there isn't a whole lot of shame in that and embarrassment, but just, uh, well, that's cool. I'm glad I'm here now compared to where I was. And it's a hope for the future. I don't know what future chip looks like, but I'm kind of excited to see like, what does future growth look like? I know some of it's going to be painful, but I think some of it might be kind of gentle and graceful and kind of just okay. That's good. How do you also pave the way for team members or influential others to give you feedback that helps you to grow in those ways? Yeah, I think we've got several categories of things that everybody on the team knows that I'm working on all the time in my growth. I say all the time that I'm perpetually working on. For example, they know that I'm trying to take up less space and trying to be less dominant in spaces, both with them and with clients. They know that I'm trying to lead more with my heart and to make heart-to-heart connections with people instead of just being so logical or straight to the point. I believe I'm a very direct communicator. I don't have much of a filter between the way I think it and the way I say it. Mm -hmm. Like I can turn the valve off to not say it, or I can turn the valve on to say it, but there's not a whole lot of, I wonder how this will land and how do I condition my words so that it's exactly the way I want it to. I just think straight. And so I talk straight. I'm not saying this is good. I'm just observing this about myself. It has advantages and disadvantages. But I think I'm in a season where I'm trying to pay more attention to how will this land? And how do I make sure that I'm not being unnecessarily provocative? How do I make sure that I'm not careless and uh, wounding somebody unintentionally? These are things that I'm paying attention to. Nikki Miller on my team, she says, you've got more energy in your little pinky than a lot of people have in their whole bodies. So tone it down. So she's like, you know, I'm just trying to use less force. And I think some of the things I'm experiencing in life around slowing down physically and also kind of spiritually and emotionally and mentally, um, trying to intentionally slow that pace down. I think that's helpful. And the team knows, like I, part of our culture is just feedback is welcome all the time. Like mm-hmm. that's just part of who we are. But we also, by the way we respond to feedback, we either cut off future feedback or invite more of it, encourage more of it. And I try to be soft in my response to feedback too, even if it hurts. You know, a good phrase is thanks for the feedback. I don't know that I always say that. Sometimes I say that sarcastically, which isn't helpful, but just slowing down and making it obvious that I'm trying to internalize what they're saying or asking clarifying questions. I think that can be really helpful to encourage them to keep helping me grow as a leader. And I feel a tremendous protection from my team of me, which gives me a sense of safety so that I can hear the feedback and grow. They try to protect my time. They try to make sure I'm focused on the things that are most important for me as CEO to be focused on. I have a thing that I say sometimes, which is like within my marriage, if my wife Kim does something that is upsetting to me, I think to myself, am I going to be upset about this in 24 hours? And if not, maybe it's not worth bringing up. But even if I, before the 24 hours, if I know, no, I'm still definitely going to be upset about this 24 hours, then I'll bring it up. And so I think we have some discernment about some things are worth bringing up because they're important enough to merit each other's attention. And some things it's like, ah, it's a hustle foul, right? It's a tough meeting. We're going to say something. We just let it go because we have grace for each other. So I suppose there are probably some places where my team doesn't give me feedback, but that I hope that's more just wisdom and discernment of, ah, maybe not important for them to pay attention to that right now. 
And I hope it's not them biting their tongue for fear of whatever my response would be. You know, one of the components of what I think is pivotal on this Savage to Sage journey is is this practice of some people would call it self-care, some people call it soul care. I define it as investing in those most important parts of your being, which you're clearly speaking to in a number of ways. I would, I'm just curious, like for you and your practice outside of the business, what does soul care look like for you? What are some of those key practices that really recharge you? One thing I'll say, and this means something different than most people will think it means, is I will say church. In the last few years, I've come to redefine what church is. Church is not going someplace on Sunday morning and being with a big group of people. Church to me is a body of believers. And so I have lots of churches in my life. My wife is my church. My relationship with some of my friends is my church. This conversation to me is church. And my team, my Kairos team is church. So there's something about being with other people who have some level of alignment and worldview where there's a safety there that is good for your soul. I don't think you want to surround yourself with people such that it's always an echo chamber and you never hear any conflicting views, but trusting someone else's worldview alignment can create a level of just safety and solid, similar foundation for a lot of different types of conversations. Practically, Craig Miller One of my good friends introduced me to The Artist's Way, which is by Julia Cameron, which is a book and a process. And one of the things that Julia Cameron recommends is morning pages. And morning pages is where you write first thing in the morning, three pages longhand, and you don't stop until you get to three pages. When I was going through this book with Craig and two of his friends, well, his brother and friend, I guess his brother's a friend too, I did it probably 95% of the days during a 12-week period. And since then, I probably get to morning pages two or three or sometimes four or five times a week, but I don't do it seven days a week anymore. But when I do it, I find it's an incredibly helpful practice. And I also find that stopping at page two is inadequate. It isn't morning pages unless you get all the way to page three. And I find oftentimes the gold, like the depth and the true value comes somewhere around page two and a half. And so you got to clear the mechanism and get all that stuff out And then something really cool, a great insight tends to, it like almost invariably pops on page three. That's been a helpful practice for me. I also, I'm a horrible meditator, but sometimes I will spend 20 minutes in a sit and just try to meditate. As the Reverend Joe Stabile says, success in meditation is not that you didn't get distracted, it's that you meditated. And so my monkey mind is going all the time, climbing up the pole, and I just keep gently inviting him back down to focus on my breathing or whatever I'm supposed to be focusing on in my meditation. I have a spiritual director and she is the same Enneagram type as I am eight. Her name is Jackie Halstead. And she said, what about using prayer beads? And I'm like, Jackie, I'm Protestant. We Protestants don't use prayer beads. She's like, why don't you just try some Anglican prayer beads? I find them very helpful. They're very grounding for me. I'm like, fine, I'll get some Anglican prayer beads. So I went online, bought some Anglican prayer beads, and I found it very helpful for some kind of meditative contemplative prayer that I do. Mm. So that's another practice that I find very grounding. And one that I've been doing lately, which is great, is just going down, lying on the couch and just chilling out and trying not to think of anything. It's a type of meditation, but I'm not actively, it's just relaxing. It's like finding some stillness, which I don't have a lot of in my life. It's just hard to come by. So maybe uh, maybe on a night when Kim's fixing dinner and I'm done with work, 
I'll just go in on the couch, kind of put the side pillow behind my head and lay down there. And usually it takes me about 10 minutes before my body starts to really relax and mm. kind of clear out some of that stuff. And my mind starts to quiet down. I can get more access to my deep heart. I find when I do that, it's just great for my soul. So those are yeah. a few of the very practical things I do that I think are good for soul care. I like it. I'll make one other comment, which is Jackie is a spiritual director. I also have a long-term friend who's been a spiritual director for about 10 years named Rob Lone in Sioux Falls. And Rob and I talk about once a month, we kind of alternate now. One month we'll focus on him and the next month we'll focus on me. But having people who are paying attention to your soul and as the spiritual directors say, listening to God on your behalf is an incredible practice. And you know this, having some spiritual direction experience, both as a yeah. spiritual director and a recipient of spiritual direction. Yeah. One of my questions for you is going to be, okay, you're a coach of others. Like, who's your coach? But you kind of answered it without me. Yeah. I also occasionally will leverage Will Davis, who is an amazing man. He's an elder of mine. He's seen things I haven't. He has deep wisdom that I don't have because he's experienced things that I hope at some point I may experience. So he can help me see around corners and he's got great advice. So I leverage him oftentimes as a business coach that veers into spiritual places. I've also got a good friend who's 83 years old named Charlie Kelly. And Charlie Charlie lives in your neighborhood. He does. Fellow Houghton graduate with you, right? I'm sure you guys see each other and slap high five. You're the only two Houghton grads in, around. Oh, well, three with Kristen, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Charlie is, he's taken an interest in me and my life and my development. And so like, I honor that. I like him a lot. I like the way he looks at the world. I care about him deeply. And he seems, he cares about me deeply. Not he seems to, he cares about me deeply in my development. Mm -hmm. So I bring things to Charlie. We, we go for a walk if the weather is good enough. And if not, we go to Hubbard and Cravens and neither of us buys anything. And then we walk out because we're shameless eights on the Enneagram. <laughs> yeah. So I think those are some of the people that are that are mentoring me. I like it. Final question. So thinking a lot about leadership and a lot of entrepreneurs that will listen to this show are folks that had an idea, built a product or a service and did not necessarily get into entrepreneurship to lead like a team mm -hmm. of other people. And it's their greatest opportunity, but it's also their greatest vulnerability. They got into it to build the product or the service. But now it's like, I have a team in front of me that I have to lead and I've never done this before. Mm. So what advice would you give to that profile of person mm. who's listening? I like the question. So somebody told me that the best entrepreneurs are not passionate about their solution. They're passionate about the problem they're trying to solve in the world. And what I would say to that entrepreneur is there's probably some technical aspect to that solution, but leading a team is going to be essential to scaling your ability to meet that need at scale. And if you don't also have a passion for people and their growth, because that's part of solving that problem, you're not going to be as effective at solving the problem. So some people probably are more naturally bent towards the joy of leading and they're drawn to it. They can't help themselves. And other people, they may need to back their way into it. If you're an entrepreneur and all you've got is a technical solution, then you're not going to be the one to lead the organization to deliver that to the world. Yeah, that's good. Well, tons of good wisdom. And I'm just thankful for you. And I know deep and painful work that you've done in the journey to get to where you are today, you know, and be as sagely as you are and drop the nuggets of wisdom that you have today. So thank you. And if people want it, that have listened, want to hear more about you and Kairos, where would you point them? 
LinkedIn profile, Chip Knighty is not a bad place to go. And I think kairosconsulting.com is a great place to go. K-A-I-R-O-S consulting.com. We'll drop that in the show notes for those who are having difficulty spelling Knighty like I did for the first time. So (laughs) (laughs) it's not Knight with a Y on the end. It is not an easy name. Yeah. Those dang Germans. Yep. Well, thank you, Chip. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to today's interview. To view show notes or hear more episodes, please visit www.savagetosage.com. 